So my first exposure to hockey was actually just kind of getting off the ice after my figure skating practice in the morning. And then um, we had a, uh, I think it was a, an AHL team at the time, uh, the ice caps, they don't exist anymore. Um, but they would have their practices after our early morning figure skating sessions. So I would see these guys jump on the ice and they'd be doing their sprints and their pushups and their coach would be yelling at them. And I just remember thinking that was like way more my speed. I was like, this looks like fun. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today was a member of the 2018 Korean Olympic hockey team. She has her PhD in human evolutionary biology. And currently, she's working at Kayak as a data scientist. Welcome to the show, Randy Griffin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for spending time with me today, Randy. I Before we got going, I was asking you, if you've been on a podcast before, and uh, apparently the podcast you were on had much better digs than me, um, a nice studio. So I appreciate you downgrading a little bit to spend some time with me. Yeah, no problem. Um, it was a little local thing, so you know they just bring people in from the Boston area. So, so is that is that where you are? And that's what I was one thing I was trying to figure out. Are you are you in Boston now? Yeah, I'm in Boston. Um, I came here for for the work because Kayak is based here. Okay. Um, so yeah. So let's, I want to jump way back to uh, getting started in hockey. How, how do you get started in hockey? Uh, you know, it, obviously, hockey is kind of growing in popularity in the U.S. I don't know if you grew up in the U.S. or if you grew up in Korea, but um, how does that journey kind of start for you? Yeah, so, so I did grow up in the U.S. Um, my mother grew up in Korea, but I actually hadn't been there until I went there to play hockey as an adult. Okay. Um, so I grew up in North Carolina, where hockey is not a huge sport. Uh, it's grown a lot lately. Um, but when I was a kid, the Hurricanes actually had just uh, sort of moved. They were previously the Whalers in Connecticut, and then they moved uh, to Raleigh, uh, well, Greensboro, North Carolina first, um, and then to Raleigh. So that was happening while I was a kid. And so there was a lot of buzz in the area around, oh, we have like a professional hockey team now. Um, and I actually was a figure skater first. Um, so okay. that was something that my my mother was really into. She had always just dreamed of her daughters being figure skaters. Uh, for some reason, she wanted figure skaters and pianists. Uh, so that's what we did. So my first exposure to hockey was actually just kind of getting off the ice after my figure skating practice in the morning. And then um, we had a, uh, I think it was a, an AHL team at the time, uh, the Ice Caps, they don't exist anymore, um, but they would have their practices after our early morning figure skating sessions. So I would see these guys jump on the ice and they'd be doing their sprints and their pushups and their coach would be yelling at them. And I just remember thinking that was like way more my speed. I was like, this looks like fun. Um, I'd really like to be out there. But there was just this really automatic, like I would say, could I try that? And people would say, no, like girls don't play hockey. There's no place for you to play. Um, and so it just wasn't even really a question. And then the the big game changer for me was uh, 1998. 
uh, women's hockey was in the Olympics for the first time. Uh, so that was Nagano, Japan, and uh, Team USA won the gold in that one. And I was 10 years old at the time. So I remember watching that on TV with my parents. And my mom had always said, oh, like, you should go to the Olympics as a figure skater. And I said, you know what? I want to go to the Olympics, but not as a figure skater. I think I want to do that. And for the first time, my mom couldn't really say, oh, like, girls don't do this, because obviously they do um, mm-hmm. on TV. Either they were doing it. Um, and it still took some time. She was still like, no, this is weird. It looks dangerous. And I think my dad was the one who was really like, he didn't like watching figure skating that much. He certainly didn't like getting up at like five in the morning to take me to figure skating practice. Uh, so I think he kind of pushed my mom and was like, why don't we just let her try it? Um, he realized he had a lot more fun watching me play hockey than figure skating. Um, so that was how the transition happened around age 11, I guess. Um, and my sister also, uh, she's two years younger, but she also made the transition with me. So we became a hockey family. So was it at, at that point, was there, uh, uh, I guess at that age, it's girls hockey, but was there a girls hockey team or was it co-ed or, or what was available to you? Yeah. So, so the very young ages, it's pretty mixed. Um, and so it wasn't really a big deal at age 11 for me to be out there doing learn to play hockey with the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, there actually was a local girls hockey team but there were so few players that they combined everyone from age basically as old as you could be to play hockey. So there were like 10-year-olds on this team all the way up to age 19. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was one team for all the ages. And so you could imagine that was sort of a weird dynamic. And it was really just kind of for fun. You'd go out and mess around. Um, but when there's a 10-year-old and a 19-year-old on the ice, it's not going to be like super competitive. Um, so I actually ended up growing up playing in the boys' hockey system in North Carolina, Um you know, I, I guess technically it was co-ed, but there weren't a lot of girls playing. There were just a handful of us, um, but that's what was available at the time. And, you know, I, I only have kind of, I guess I'll say minor exposure to professional hockey through my college roommate who loves it. Um, but obviously at the professional level, the game can be pretty aggressive. Um, is it, you know, when you're talking amateur sport, is it still that way? Is it more... Um, strict in terms of like checking and all those kind of things that happen at the at the you know kind of higher professional level um yeah it, it definitely is um so on the woman's side there is technically no no checking um there's still a lot of physical contact but uh, it really has to be like incidental uh, as you're going for the puck you can crash into somebody but it's not like in men's hockey where there's like a three second rule where you can sort of smash into somebody even after they got rid of the puck Mm-hmm. Um, that's not allowed on the boys side. They're very strict about fighting, for example. So like that doesn't happen in youth hockey. Everyone's wearing face masks as well. So like it'd be kind of stupid to get in a fight anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's a different game. I think it's more focused on, on skill and the fighting kind of, I don't know, I guess junior hockey has fighting. Um, like even college hockey, there's, there's really no fighting. Um, so yeah, I think that's just a transition as you move into the professional game. So in since I had this opportunity, maybe I should ask this question in regards to fighting. This isn't obviously something you've participated in, but just in your opinion, at, since it doesn't really happen at the youth level, it, it transitions as you go to the pros. Is it do you think it's more for entertainment value than it is for like mm-hmm. like jockeying for position? That's a really good question. Um, I think they're. There is entertainment value for sure, and I think that is a huge factor in in maintaining the culture of fighting. 
but it's definitely also, I think, a cultural component of the game, at least in North America. Um, I think it's much less so in Europe and certainly in Asia. They don't have this kind of fighting culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but U.S. and Canada, I think you'd have a really hard time changing a lot of guys' minds because they've sort of convinced themselves that this is an essential part of the game, that hockey is an exceptional sport. And even though things like rugby and football don't have fighting, they'll say, well, you know, hockey, the game moves so fast. We have to police ourselves. You know, if somebody does something wrong, we have to be able to punish that guy. And if we didn't have this system, it would be all just chaos. I don't really buy that, but I know that some people feel that very deeply in their heart. And, um, you know, it's it's not just about the entertainment value for them. I think it really is like the culture of the game, um, okay. at least in some circles. Well, yeah, I, I just like I said, it's, it's really me kind of coming from an outside perspective looking in. I, you know, as, as much as this is a smart athlete podcast, I almost live in a little bubble kind of doing my own thing. I don't watch a ton of professional sports. I've, you know, I watch football now and I've watched soccer for a considerable amount of time. Um, but so I get kind of glimpses into it, but you definitely get that appearance that like, if you want a very like aggressive sport, which a lot of Americans do, they love football, then like hockey's right up your alley. You even get fighting. Like if you like, if you like football and you like UFC, you're going to love hockey, you know? So that's where I wonder whether it was people putting on a show. Cause you know, like, like when you watch American football, guys do end zone dances and they do all these things it has nothing to do with the game it's all entertainment value so that's why as somebody inside the sport you know hoping you could have a better kind of insight into that yeah um yeah i don't know it is a complicated issue it's definitely something i've talked about with a lot of my hockey friends um and you know friends of mine are pretty much across the board in terms of thinking like this really needs to go it's ridiculous and it's just about making money and then guys that like really feel like no, this is a it's a sacred part of the game, mm-hmm. uh, and you can't touch it. Uh, so yeah, I I can understand that in, in the sense that like I don't know that I want to just I would want to play a sport where I'm getting into fights all the time, but at the same time like I can see the appeal in in the sense that it, it almost seems like a lot of especially U.S. culture is getting kind of homogenized where we're one big mass of like beige. <laughs> like it, there's not all these, not as many differences and pockets of uniqueness as I think existed pre internet as that kind of spreads and, and mashes us all together. Um, so maintaining some kind of uniqueness or allure, even if it is through violence in this case, I could see that kind of from a, well, I don't want to say anthropological standpoint, but just that kind of idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I can definitely empathize with it. And um, there's a pretty good documentary about fighting in hockey that I watched recently on, on Netflix, actually, and I'm blanking on the name of it. But um, they sort of, I think, fall on the side of fighting has a role in the game. And, like, it's not just about entertainment value. And they sort of they use this example of, Uh, Wayne Gretzky, who was like not a big guy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And if people, you know, big guys on other teams wanted to just like knock his lights out, like they probably could at some point. But Wayne Gretzky was sort of protected by the enforcers that he had on his line with him. Um, And he felt very strongly about it. Like if he got traded, he's like, this guy's got to come with me. Like this is my protector. And this is the guy who allows me to play the very finesse style of game that I play, right? 
And people have made the argument that Sidney Crosby, for example, doesn't have that. And part of the, you know, he's got a lot of concussions and had a little bit of a challenging career in terms of um, injuries. And he's not even that little, like compared to Gretzky, but he's never really had that enforcer presence on his line. So I think there's more of a sense that you could take him out and like, maybe you're not going to get punished. So I can see the argument for it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess my opinion is it's, it's not an essential part of the game. And I, I personally am very happy with the fact that the women's game doesn't have it. I don't think it needs it. Um, but, you know, I can understand that there is kind of two different versions of the game. Um, yeah. yeah. So earlier I was kind of thinking about since you started um, with figure skating, um, I would assume that that kind of gives you a, a really nice base in terms of um, – as you mentioned with Gretzky, finesse, like a good touch with the ice mm-hmm. versus somebody that just was out there and kind of skating. I'll say straight lines, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Did, 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 were you in figure skating long enough to feel like that made a difference in terms of your um, kind of agility or skill compared to some other players? Um, I would say definitely. So I figure skated for two years. Um, I wouldn't say I was great at it like after two years I still hadn't landed an axle which kind of meant okay like you're not going anywhere with this um but yeah the edge work is something that um you just focus on that as a figure skater in a way that young hockey players are generally very distracted by pucks and by hitting each other and that sort of thing so um I've also done a good amount of coaching and I know when you're coaching little kids trying to teach them how to play the hardest thing is that they don't want to work on their skating right? They want to learn how to take a slap shot. They want to be playing the game. But sometimes it's like, well, you can't even stop. Like you need to focus on your edge work, but it's so hard when there's all that distraction of the Mm -hmm. actual game, right? Um, So personally, I think it's great. Um, I think like if you can spend a year or two purely focusing on skating, it's huge. Um, The other thing about figure skating is when you fall, like it hurts really bad because you're not wearing any gear. Mm -hmm. Um, so you really sort of learn how to how to use your edges and stay on your feet. Um, and then when I transitioned to hockey, I think that was probably one of the things that allowed me to work through uh, feeling a little bit like a, a weirdo because I was the only girl in most of my classes, right? And, and boys would kind of look at me and be like, well, what are you doing here? But then I'd be zipping around and they'd be like, whoa, like actually you can really skate. Um, and I didn't know how to handle the puck or do anything else, but the skating really made me stand out and I think gave me the confidence that I could play this game um, because I had something the boys didn't have, which was skating finesse. Mm-hmm. Can you, so um, when you're coaching, is there any way you could like trick kids into learning how to do all that stuff, like make a game out of it? I, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm like, it seems so fundamental. Like your path, I'm just like, that, it makes so much sense. Kind of like, um, God, forgetting what coach, what basketball coach this is, but talking about just like, working on the fundamentals stop working on like trick shots like nail your fundamentals and then like you have a base that's better than everybody else so you'll be able to get to the next level and get beyond where you are because your fundamentals are so good and and as somebody who is uh mediocre at best on ice um you know i I can i i see you know i see figure skaters i see hockey players and just with the speed that you've got to move at, like how good you've got to be on skates, it seems like you would obviously want to start there. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely tough, but um, I think growing up, I was lucky to to sort of um, find the mentorship of some really good uh, hockey instructors who also felt really strongly about the importance of fundamentals. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a, a guy named, um, oh, what was his name? Oh, shoot. I'm blanking on his name, so forget that. He was a Russian guy who like came to the U.S. and sort of made a career out of like training players in these camps and was really big on just developing these fundamental skills. So my mom somehow like found one of these camps, like sent me to it. And I remember like the entire first week of the camp, there were no pucks and you wouldn't even have your stick on the ice, right? You would just be out there and you'd be doing all these edge work drills. And part of the way that they'd keep kids motivated is they had these incredible instructors who were guys that were usually like um, sort of like pro hockey players, like lower level AHL or something like that, yeah. um, or maybe even just below that level. But they'd be incredible skaters and they would be out there like demonstrating every single drill. So you could see what they could do first. And because they were so cool and they're like your hero and you want to be just like them, I think that really helped us to feel like, okay, like we really need to, to master this stuff. Like if these guys who, you know, we know how cool they are, if they think it's important to do it, like it's important for us too. Um, so these summer camps were also, I think, really huge. And yeah, I appreciated that a lot. That totally makes sense thinking about like, you find somebody like a, that a kid idolizes and they're like, well, I want to be right just like them. If they're, if they're out there and they can do it and like, that's what they're saying is important, then follow, you know, follow the breadcrumbs. It's no, like no more difficult than that. Do you, do you have that kind of influence yet? I feel like you should. Um, sometimes like with, with the right kids, um, you know, I feel like coaching is always hit or miss. So I don't know. I probably coached like six different teams and then also ended up being a, an instructor at one of these similar types of camps. Um, and yeah, you know, you find kids that are not into it and, you know, they'll say, oh, this is like, this is a stupid waste of time. And like they go through the motions on the drills. Um, but I did find that there are a lot of kids who would sort of just respect like where I took the game and say, okay, like if you think this is important, like I'll put the time in for this. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So one of the things I was wondering about in a lot of, so you played at Harvard, correct? Yeah. Um, one of the things a lot of collegiate athletes have trouble with is post-collegiately continuing to play. So, you know, I'm kind of in the unique position that I ran in college on scholarship. I can continue to run as long as I'd like to, like, I don't need a team to do it. How, you know, did you have, is there, is there like, I'll say amateur, but in your case, it may not have been, but just, is there, is there an avenue for people to continue as adults to play hockey? Yeah. So as a woman, I would say it's really difficult. Um, for men, there are certainly leagues where you can go and develop your skills after college. Um, but for women there at the time I graduated, which was 2010, there was really nothing. Um, you could play in like men's leagues. They would be sort of recreational men's leagues that might not be the safest. And usually we're not really like, you know, you don't have a coach, like you don't have systems, but you could still like keep your skills up that way. Um, but it was really difficult. It, it felt sort of like if you graduated from college and you weren't on Team USA and getting the support from the national program, there was nothing. You were just done. Um, so for a lot of girls, there was definitely a mindset of like, try to get into the Team USA program or Team Canada program while you're in college. And if you graduate and you're not there, you're done. 
Um, so for me, that that was the case. I graduated and, you know, like pretty much every other girl I was playing with, I had dreams of, of playing for Team USA as a kid. Um, and, you know, even in college, although by the end of college, I had sort of realized, OK, I'm, I'm not really at that level. So after I graduated, I just moved on with my life and decided I was going to focus on academics. And I actually didn't play for a few years. I was coaching kids, but not really playing at all. One of the things that I often talk about with, I'll talk to like, like I before we got going, I mentioned my friend Todd and, and I talked to other people that have their PhDs in exercise physiology and that kind of field. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, um, I think it was Dr. Keith Barr who mentioned that a lot of people in that field were really motivated to, you know, be Olympians, be pros, and just didn't have the physicality to do it. So they end up in that field trying to figure out why. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with hockey, you know, I think about, since I come from a running background, I think about it, there are strategies and tactics, but it is largely a purely physical endeavor. You know, how fast can you run mm-hmm. versus team sports where there's a lot more skill involved, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm kind of wondering it, it, when you're thinking about trying to get into that, um, Olympic development pipeline in college, you, your opinion on like physicality versus skill and then development of skill, does it matter so much? Is there an easy way to see, like, like you said, you didn't feel like you were at that level to be able to continue or you weren't able to get into the program. Is in your opinion, there a hard line that it's like, no, that person's just never going to have the touch on the ice that you need for that kind of level? Or is it a matter of, I need to put in more hours or find new coaches or, or, or that kind of thing? Yeah, um, that's definitely, a, I think, a really interesting question because hockey is a game where there are many different ways to be a good player, right? And you can look at the NHL and you can see like, you know, Zedno Chara, and then you can see like, you know, a guy like, you know, Martin St. Louis, who's like five foot four. And both of these guys have managed to make it to the highest level of the game and are extremely effective, completely different styles, completely different strengths and weaknesses. Um, so it's one of the cool things about the game, I think, that you can sort of take whatever your physical attributes are and say, OK, like what type of player should I model myself after so that I can actually play the game at a high level? Um, in terms of there being like a hard line, I don't know if I would say it's a hard line. Like it's not like running, right, where it's like you could literally say if you're not above this speed like you're just not fast enough right um, you're just your maximum is just not going to be there yeah like it's 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 not that simple i think um and i also think that there's a lot of kind of circumstantial things that can play into who makes it to like a team usa for example um one thing i've noticed is like every time the coach of team usa changes a lot of the players change right a different coach is going to have a different idea of what types of players are going to fit into their system, into their leadership style, right? Um, and so I think that that can play a huge role. And then also just when you're in your college years, for example, having a coach who advocates for you and decides, okay, like from your freshman year, I think you're going to be a star. So I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to put you in these roles, high pressure situations. I'm going to put you with good players, right? Give you the opportunities to do these things and to build your confidence. That makes a huge difference versus having a coach who just ignores you or decides like, you know, whatever, I'm just going to start you on the bottom and you have to scratch and claw your way to the top. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think there are sort of like kingmakers um, 
in the world of hockey. I think it happens in, in men's hockey too, where someone gets a reputation early on and then it's like, you know, they just get sort of lifted up everywhere they go. Um, and you can also see players who, um, I think Martin St. Louis was an example. I don't know if you know who, who this is, but, um, I don't, but that's okay. Okay. So he, he played on the Tampa Bay lightning, um, won a Stanley cup. Uh, he was one of my heroes just because he was so little, he was five foot four, um, and I remember reading the story about him that he was like a mediocre player on his college team, uh, University of Vermont, I think. And they told him, like, you should just give up playing. You're not going to go anywhere. Right. And then like a decade later, he wins a Stanley Cup and he's the captain of the team. Um, and all of that had to do with him, I think, finding the right coach, the right line mates and basically getting the opportunity to show what he could do. And maybe even in college, because of his size, he was sort of overlooked and not put in good places. Um, so it is really complicated. Um, but I also think it's one of the beautiful things about the game that, you know, it's not, it's not like you could just rank all the players top to bottom and say, okay, if we put all them on a team together, that's going to be the best team. It's not necessarily true, right? It's about putting together a puzzle piece. And a lot of times a team with sort of maybe mediocre players individually who work really well together could end up beating a team that has, you know, by some objective measure, all the best players. I think, you know, his story maybe is part of the allure and in some aspects, frustration and uh, magic of sports where it's like, you know, you could, I think by some measures for sure, you could call it an underdog story where in college, as you mentioned, he's being told basically you're not going to do anything. And then he goes on, you know, to, to win the whole thing later you know a decade later and a decade is not in, in you know a don't, small amount yeah, of time it might have been longer it might have been longer than that don't quote me on the time well but but i mean even if it's a decade like a decade is that's a long time mm-hmm. you know um and so it's like as a just as a sports fan you kind of go well how you know how did he make it was it just pure determination was was there luck involved and that's the kind of frustrating and frightening thing is like, as a young athlete, if you're listening, you know, how do you progress forward towards your dreams? You know, what, you know, how much do you have control over and how much is just simply being in the right place at the right time? Yeah, uh, definitely something I've, I've thought a lot about myself. Um, and I, I guess I think it's interesting you mentioned these people going into the field because they're they're trying to sort of understand why why they didn't make it to the level they wanted to make it. Um, it was something I thought a lot about too, because I was definitely someone who like studied the game, right? I really tried to optimize everything about how I trained. I was always looking for ways to get an edge, trying to figure out, you know, oh, this person made it. Okay, like what did they do? Oh, they took Pilates classes. Okay, I'll take Pilates classes. Like whatever it is. Um, and you know, you you want to think that you have a lot of control uh, over what the outcomes are, but you know, ultimately, at least. For me, in the sport of hockey, I ended up feeling that you, you have relatively little control. And when I think back, like if I could change one thing about the way I approach the game, it would probably be to like chill out and have fun because I was so stressed so much of the time, right? Like I was playing the game I loved, but I was making myself unhappy because I always felt inadequate. And I always was looking, you know, to the next thing rather than sort of enjoying the moment and what I'm doing because I thought, well, if I if I take that lax attitude, then I'll never make it. Right. Um, but as it turns out, you know, I, depending on your, your metric, like I didn't make it right. I didn't make team USA. Um, and like, I wish I had just been a little more relaxed, like while I was playing. 
Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. Um, it is a tough thing because I also respect the people who, who really give it everything they have, but, um, you know, you can't control everything. Yeah. Well, no matter who I talk to, and I talk to professional athletes, I talk to amateur athletes, it seems like a lot of them, no, no matter who they are, no matter what the sport is, if you don't, if you're going to avoid burnout and kind of reach your potential, it seems like every single one of them comes back to, I figured out how to enjoy myself, even in the midst of just obliterating myself in training <laughs> to try to be better. There was still some kind of joy to be found in that day to day. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's so important. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think when you're, when you're comparing yourself to the person on the right and the left, it, it can be hard to keep that in the forefront of your mind. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah, I would say like one thing I actually kind of appreciated because I got this weird, like random chance to go to the Olympics, like after having several years off and sort of like mourning the end of my career and, you know, feeling sorry for myself that I didn't go as far as I wanted to, everything felt like a bonus. And I actually was just kind of having a good time. And I know some of my younger teammates weren't understanding that because they were still in that mindset that I remember being in when I was their age. Um, and so I sometimes felt like my, my role was to try to tell them, Hey, like, you know, these are some of the best years of your life. Like you need to relax. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. I feel like that kind of gives you a unique opportunity, um, to just enjoy the whole Olympic process, mm -hmm. you know, so few of the people that begin sports at an early age. So few of us get to walk into the Olympic stadium for the opening ceremony and see the crowds and be a part of, you know, the whole thing going on. And I feel like you can kind of see as everybody's walking in, like who's really soaking it up and who's like already in like, game mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like not even there because they're like, no, it's too late. I gotta, I gotta be in bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. So, so tell me about your Olympic experience. Um, how how do you how do you go from not playing to basically getting called up to play with the Korean team? Yeah, um, so it it was really incredibly lucky. Uh, so so what happened was uh, South Korea basically found out. Okay, like we're hosting the Olympics. I think 2014 they find that out, and then they also find out from the IIHF that, um, oh, if we want to, if we can like meet certain criteria, they will allow us as the host country to send a women's ice hockey team and a men's ice hockey team, even though according to the international rankings, we're not good enough to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so they said, okay, we want to do this. We think this could be a chance to like, you know, spark something, some interest in this sport in our country. Uh, so, you know, we want to try for it, but they had barely enough players for a women's hockey team. And they were like, okay, like we need to do something about this. Like the, some of the players who were there also just were not very skilled. Um, they were very passionate, but I would describe it as like a grassroots, almost like social club. Mm -hmm. um, they loved the game, but it was like one team of girls just like playing against themselves all the time, hanging out. Um, and they had a coach, but like the coach didn't worry too much about their performance because they would go to like international tournaments and just get their butts kicked. And it wasn't a big deal. Um, so they said, okay, we have four years. That's not enough time to actually like develop 
a strong grassroots women's hockey program. Mm -hmm. So they took a two pronged strat a two pronged strategy to building their team. Uh, the first piece was they found a group of kids. Um, there were six kids who at the time were like 12 years old and they're like, okay, like, you know how to skate. A couple of them had been speed skating. A couple of them had been figure skating. Um, a couple of them had been playing on this national team, even as little kids. And they're like, okay, we're going to send you to Canada. You're going to go to high school in Toronto and you're a hockey player now. And when you come back, you'll be old enough to play in the Olympics and you'll be able to speak English and you'll be good at hockey. So they sent those kids to, um, a school called the Ontario Hockey Academy. Um, and so they got to develop as players there. Their other strategy was to say, okay, let's scour college hockey rosters in Canada and the US and let's look for Korean names. And we'll contact those people and we'll find out like if their parents were born in Korea, like we can get them citizenship easily. Um, you know, maybe they speak a little Korean and they'll be interested in joining us. So they hired a guy who his whole job was basically to do this work. So he's going through the college hockey rosters and he's not coming up with much because I think hockey is just not really part of Korean culture. It's very rare mm -hmm. for a Korean mother to say, okay, sure, my kid's gonna play hockey. So he wasn't finding many players. And he found one girl who played at Princeton, graduated in 2011. Her name was Caroline Park. So he found the park and contacted her and she actually very quickly went over to Korea and like starts playing with the team. But she had a memory of uh, from her college days playing against a Korean player. And the only reason that she knew that I was half Korean is because my mother was at this game where we played against Princeton and her father was in the stands and they recognized each other as Koreans. And they're like, oh, that's weird. Like two Korean people in a rink. Um, <laughs> So they kind of connected and she was like, yep, I, I know about this person. She was a good player. You should get in touch. And so that's when I got this email from the Korean Ice Hockey Association asking if I wanted to come spend my summer in Korea playing hockey. Um, so I actually, I rejected them the first time around. I said, that's crazy. I haven't played hockey in like four years and like, you know, I, I can't do it. I'm in grad school. They kept emailing they actually somehow got my dad's phone number. They like called him. They were so persistent. And then my dad actually kind of talked me into it. And he was like, you know, you're going to break your Korean grandparents heart if you don't go like, you know, and break his heart if I don't go. So I'm like, okay, like I'll try it out. And once I went there, it was just a ton of fun. And, you know, I just kind of got the hockey bug again and that was it. So, I mean, how does that email feel? Does that like get, getting that email, does that feel like one of those like Nigerian print scams where you're like, this is not. <laughs> Actually, that was my first thought. Like, so I remember showing my fellow grad students like in the lab, like look at this email I got, like how could they come up with such a specific scam? How could they know that like I'm half Korean, I play hockey, that I would be interested in the Olympics? Like, no, <laughs> this is ridiculous. But that was my first thought. And it wasn't until there were like multiple follow-up emails and, and whatnot that I was like, okay, it's real. And when I heard from Caroline Park as well, I'm like, okay, she's real. And like, she's telling me there's a team over there. So, yeah. I love how your dad, <laughs> your dad basically is pushing you to not, not do figure skating. And then now is trying to get you back into <laughs> hockey at a later date. Yeah. I, I think he definitely missed it. He, he loved watching his kids play sports and, um, you know, I think he's a little bored. <laughs> so. It's like entertaining me. 
so you're in grad school. Are you are you master's or PhD at this time? I, mean, I think you'd be in your PhD track by that time, right? Uh, yeah. So my program was pretty much like just PhD. Okay. Um, no, like master's phase. So so yeah, I was I was in the PhD program at the time. Um, I guess that would have been just like a year in actually. Mm. And so are you? How, how do you manage that time? Because I would assume you've got to fly to Korea, play with the team, but you're also doing studies um, yeah. at Duke, right? So it's like you're <laughs> two different sides of the planet. Yeah, so so I got very lucky for everything to work out for me to be able to kind of do both things at the same time. Um, I think what, what made me lucky was, number one, getting a fellowship that released me from my teaching duties. Otherwise, I would have had to be like on the ground teaching courses every semester. So I was free to just do research. Uh, the other thing was that I was doing all like computational work. So I didn't actually need to be in a physical lab. Like once I got my data, I could work from anywhere. Um, so those two things really made it possible for me to, to be abroad and still be working towards my degree. Um, and in terms of productivity, it also actually worked out pretty well because on the Korean national team, most of the girls were either in school or had a job. So it was kind of like the evening was the time when you would train and be with the team. And during the day, you would be focused on whatever your other thing was. So I would just basically, it was a lot like being in college. It was, you know, work during the day, go to the rink in the evening. Um, so, yeah, it worked out pretty well. It's going to be nice to have the, essentially the whole team unified with the same kind of culture instead of it being like, okay, there goes Randy again. She's going to do her PhD thing and everybody else is like, all right, back on the ice. Yeah, I think it's definitely a like a woman's hockey thing because it's not like it's not a career for anyone and everyone has in their mind at some point, um, you know, you do get a little stipend for playing on the national team, which comes out to about 50 bucks a day. Mm -hmm. um, and for some of the younger girls, that's like, that's cool. They're still living at home. It's like pocket money for them. But everyone's thinking, you know, this is going to end eventually and I need to do something else. So I need to be developing other skills. Um, so yeah. So I know, um, this is a good point to transition to your PhD, but before we do, um, I know that, um, you know, I think you sent along that article to Joe that uh, Harvard had posted about you being um, the only woman on the team to score a goal in the Olympics. Do you put a lot of emphasis on that? Or is it in your mind more of a PR piece for like people associated with you? Yeah, it's definitely a PR piece. I mean, I don't I don't put a lot of weight on it at all. Um, I feel a little guilty about it, actually, because I okay. felt, I don't know, I felt like I was I was brought in on the team a little bit late, right? Like there were girls on the team who the team wouldn't have existed if they hadn't been putting in time for for years, right? Um, girls on the team are the same age as me. They're like close to 30 um, and they've been doing this since they're teenagers, right? And this team is like their baby. And um I didn't do anything particularly great to get the goal either. Like it was really a, a bit of a garbage goal, mm -hmm. um, a couple of lucky bounces and it went in. But um, I don't know, I, I guess at the time it definitely blew up in Korea. Um, like I know the, the day after uh, one of my Korean teammates came to me and was like, hey, like, have you checked Naver today? Naver is like a Korean search engine. It's like they're Google. And I'm like, no, I, I don't read Naver. Like I don't read Korean articles and she's like okay well you should go there like your name is trending at like the top 
of like everything in the country right now. And I guess people need sometimes like a, a face or like a personality to, to sort of attach to make a sport interesting to them. And, you know, in a country that doesn't have a hockey culture, I think, you know, they liked the story. Like, you know, I, I came back to my home country, right. Um, and, you know, my Korean grandparents were there and it was like their life coming full circle that their granddaughter scored a goal for Korea. Um, so, you know, people sort of liked the story and, you know, I had a cool haircut at the time. So I don't know, it, it just happened. Um, and I went with it, but yeah, it was, it was very, uh, random. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, we definitely see it in the U S where it's like people will, you know, you'll get, I'll say like, I, I don't think this has happened, but say we had like somebody in the modern pentathlon and they were the best ever, like you would have people rallying around them, even though they have no idea what the mm -hmm. five sports are in modern pentathlon or the rules or how it works just because they're like, like, yeah, team USA. And there's something like about the Olympics. To, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to call it, like a zeitgeist maybe, or some just something in the air where it's like you somehow automatically develop pride for your country, no matter what they're in. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't, the U.S. being so sport centric, you could almost say, yeah, it's just a U.S. thing. But I feel like you do see it just from countries across the board, no matter what it is. Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely brings out everyone's national pride. Um, and, you know, it, it was cool. Like, it was actually, I found it very endearing. Um, when the Olympics were, were starting to come around, like, we would be playing these exhibition games uh, just to kind of practice. And, like, the arena would be completely packed. And it was, like, very obvious that the fans had no idea what was going on. They were, like, they were cheering every time the puck went towards the other team's direction, even vaguely, right? Yeah. Just cheer. And it felt so weird, but it was also so endearing because it's like, you know, they, they have no idea what's going on, but like, they're just here to support us. And, you know, they're excited that we have a team and, you know, they're clearly very passionate. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciated it. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your PhD, you're working at Duke. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. Ecology and evolution of primates. Um, so we'll have to get to this in a minute. You jumped to data science, but when you're working on your PhD, um, what was your, like, what was your focus? What were you doing your uh, dissertation on? Um, yeah. So, so my dissertation was kind of one of many projects. Um, I was a bit of a, a generalist in grad school because I was interested in the data modeling side. I kind of jumped onto lots of people's projects. It's like a sort of technical support almost. Mm -hmm. Um, my dissertation ended up being on the evolution of the skull. Uh, so I put a lot of monkey skulls into CT scanners, get these scans, and then you kind of, you know, once they're digitized, you can put these little landmarks. And so you get like this 3D cloud that's like the shape of the skull. And then I was trying to do statistics to model how the skull shape has changed across primate evolution um, and like what kinds of factors have driven uh, different types of, of changes in the skull. Um, so that was my dissertation. Um, and yeah, it was a bit of a something I kind of fell into, to be honest. Um, there was just a, a really cool data set um, and a guy in my department who was like, hey, this would be an awesome dissertation. And I was like, OK, cool. Um, so, yeah. So I, maybe that answers my question, because when I read that, 
I always like to play devil's advocate, and I just wanted to ask you, okay, so we're looking at, you know, changes over time of these skulls. Who cares and why does it matter? Ah, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. So I think, um, I think the most sort of practical answer, which you could also still follow up with, okay, who cares about that, is um, that paleontologists, when they find something in the ground, it's like a bone, right? They want to know something about the animal that had this bone. They want to know like what it ate, did it live in social groups? Like, what was its ecology? How was it interacting with its environment? What can this tell us about the history of all life on Earth? And in order to do these kinds of reconstructions of behavioral features that don't fossilize, you need to have models that say, okay, if the bone looks like this, this animal probably walked like that, probably ate this thing, whatever. And so we try to build these models using data on species where we know both what their morphology is, but also what their behavior is, and basically try extrapolating so that we can make these inferences about things where we only have the heart tissue. Uh, so, so yeah, I think it's a, a piece of a bigger puzzle of trying to put together what happened in evolution in general. Yeah, I mean, as trying to answer my own question, it seems like I, I always like to hear what you have to say, but it seems like you're kind of going towards the idea of it's us trying to answer the in part, where do we come from? How do we get here? Mm -hmm. You know, one piece of that. Yeah, um, sure. If you're focused on humans, um, yes, that is the question. Um, I think in general, in evolutionary biology, the question is is much broader. It's kind of like, I guess the, the us is not just humans, right? It's sort of like right. all, all of the life, right? <laughs> um, you know, how did it get here? Why is it like this? How inevitable was it that it would be like this and not like something else? Um, these sorts of questions. Um, I, I mean, I think about it in terms of like, so the, I ask that kind of question of anytime I get anybody in academic field on, because you know, you can see these academic papers and if you're not used to reading at that level with that kind of, um, syntax, it is taxing. It's taxing for me. And I even try to read through, um, that kind of stuff semi-regularly now with people on the show. It, so it's like you definitely get the very glossed over look on most people. When, you know, I'm sure you've tried to explain, be like, this is the research I'm doing. And then they're like, uh-huh, that's nice. I'm, okay, that's good, Randy. You're a nice person, so I'll continue to listen, but I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, but just one of the things it seems like a lot of academics are about, no matter what they're working on, is like, Sometimes there are patterns and models that can be cross-disciplinary. Like we see things emerge in one field and somehow they'll kind of morph their way over somewhere else. So it's like, even if the collection of data seems esoteric at the time, it may prove important later. Mm -hmm. um, just because I know some people will argue, well, academics is a waste of time. Like we're not developing anything. And I love applied stuff. I talked to... Um, Dan Feeney, a former pro triathlete last week, he works at a company called Boa Technologies. And they, he is this basically the scientist on staff that helps figure out how to make like shoes fit better for performance and stuff. Like, oh. I love that stuff. And it obviously it impacts people directly, but there's a whole bunch of th theoretical stuff that came before it mm -hmm. to get him to that place. So I just, it's always nice to hear when people have done the research 
can explain why it's potentially useful. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think, uh, knowing how directly impactful your work is or how relevant it is to kind of human society immediately is a question I've struggled with and it's kind of related to why, you know, I think I, I did want to do something that was a little bit more practical and applied, which is why I made this transition to, to data science. Um, I'm working in industry now. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think there personally is enormous value to allowing scientists to follow their nose, um, you know, give them the space because they're not asking for much money to do it either. So give them the space to, you know, explore what they think is important. And these types of things like deep evolution, it definitely can be hard to come up with reasons why we really need to know about this. Um, I think like, I guess I would say two things. One is almost just philosophical. It's like, we have to care about like how life on earth got to be here, right? Like this is a really important question just for like understanding our place in the cosmos. And so I think there's value to thinking about it from that standpoint. Um, the more practical application I think could be like climate change, right? Like looking back in deep time and being like, okay, like work with the geologists and figure out what was going on in the environment at this time. And then what impact did that have on the environment? And, you know, when something catastrophic happened, how was the environment able to recover? How long did it take? Right? Like these are things that are not sort of short-term practical for you know, any application in human society, but I think they're definitely important to thinking about these long timescales and like what kind of impact we're having on the planet and ecosystems. Um, so yeah, that, that's my plug for, for evolutionary biology. I think it's important. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm totally on board. I'm absolutely on board. Um, it, before we got going, I was, you know, it seems like if you just kind of look at your CV and you go, okay, we went from evolutionary biology to data science. It seems like, well, how the hell did you make that jump? Like that, that doesn't seem very intuitive, but after you said, okay, well, I was on a bunch of different products and I was really, or projects and was kind of interested in the data and working the data in different places. I'm like, okay, well now it, the jump seems like less broad. It's more like, okay, there's more like a natural leap. Um, yeah. But so you did a fellowship in data science before moving to industry. That's right. Yeah. Um, so that, that was called insight data science. And that was a program that was very specifically designed to help people in some irrelevant academic field transition into doing something in industry. Um, I, I think the, the cynic in me would say that the term data science is really just like a branding term to mm -hmm. smart people from academia into industry, because now you can still call yourself a scientist versus a, a business analyst, which like, you know, no academic wants to be. Um, right. But it, it makes the connection that, you know, on, on a more abstract level, the types of problems that you're dealing with and like the way you solve them is actually very similar. Um, it's a little bit of coding, a little bit of statistics, right? Um, so it's it translates to a lot of things. Well, it's, I mean, data science is a relatively new field if we want to think about careers. Um, I have had one other data scientist on. And, and as you mentioned, even that name is like, it's, a, it's a, like a marketing term because it's it encompasses so many different things. Um, it was, I think it was, yeah, I wrote down episode 31, John Kelly is one of the one of only 15 people to finish the Barclay Marathons. He works in cybersecurity or or yeah, for an insurance firm. But it's like what he had mentioned, he's of a similar age to us. And 
he had mentioned, you know, when he started in college, like it wasn't even a thing. It wasn't this thing that you're like, yeah, I'm going to go into that field. It's like, it's that new, but there's so many subfields that it's like, if you say you're a data scientist and he says a, he's a data scientist, you can probably talk, but you're not doing the same thing right. at all. Like you're not in the, you're not working on the same project. Yeah, it is definitely true. And I think the, the field is sort of maturing so that there is a lot more, um, I don't know, like additional descriptors that people add to their titles. Um, and some companies are also kind of breaking down data science into like multiple subdomains. Um, but I don't know, I think it's like a, a lot of things like, I don't know that that's unique to, to data science, right? Like you could pick right. any of these kind of like corporate titles and in different corporations that title means something else. You know, what's a product manager? Like there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, so I don't know, it, it is a little confusing though. <laughs> so what are you actually doing at Kayak? I, I, are you still working right now? Maybe it's a, a good question. Um, yep. With everything going on um so i'm very fortunate to still be working um you know as you probably know the the travel industry has been hit pretty hard by covid um so there have been like you know big layoffs have happened at all the big travel companies like expedia TripAdvisor, and most recently kayak we had a pretty big round of layoffs last week um and we have stopped a lot of things like a lot of the day-to-day -day that we normally do um, which is mostly related to like marketing is just not happening anymore. Like we're not spending a lot of money on marketing. And so a lot of the people whose jobs were really in the day-to-day -day stuff, like they just didn't have anything to do. Um, those of us who are writing code, we do have stuff to do because we can always build things that'll be useful later on. Um, and in some ways the being able to step back from the crazy day-to-day -day is almost nice, at least for someone like me, because you can really focus on doing deep work on a, a project. Um, so we're trying to just invest in the future and whenever travel comes back, hopefully we'll be ready. Mm -hmm. So on the day-to-day, -day, they don't leave you kind of to your own devices to kind of work on a project that are they, they're like pulling you in to put out fires? Um, yeah, like normally they're, you know, we have a, a role called data science on call which basically means we have these data pipelines where data comes in from Google and Facebook and all these other places. And sometimes those pipelines break and we have to go in and fix them so that we can get our data and do what we need to do. Um, so, so yeah, that kind of day-to-day -day stuff does happen and, and often takes, you know, depending on the day, it could take 30 minutes or your whole day. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of stuff is, is pretty relaxed right now. Um, I, I wish I knew who that was. I, I saw, um, you know what I'm talking about when I say uh, there's that uh, company masterclass and they have all the masterclasses with. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I saw an ad. Um, I bought a masterclass with Hans Zimmer about oh, cool. film scoring. Yeah. But So I get all these masterclass ads. I saw this ad from an author, and I, I wish I could remember her name. Hmm. But she was talking about in the ad that interruptions are the death of creativity. So she's talking to me in, in the context of writing, like you need to find a time where you're not going to be interrupted and you can let your mind kind of go to work. So yeah. that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about being able to step back and just kind of do your thing is you're not having to go put out fires constantly and then try to come back and refocus. Like you can let your brain go to work. Yeah, exactly. There's like a huge cognitive um, cost, I think, to task switching. 
Um, and, and in general, I, I feel lucky that on my team, I think everyone knows that. And so we try to like kind of clump the meetings together, right? And like leave as much of that sort of uninterrupted time for people to work as possible. Um, but, you know, it, it's also a pretty small team. So like, you know, when, when a lot of stuff is happening, you have to get kind of pulled one way or another. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's one of the things that um, in the coming weeks, I have somebody like a, a business person coming on. I'm hoping to talk to him more about that the whole role of like batching tasks and task switching. Because I, I think we don't, especially because of like, like I have my phone here, which can be very distracting. Yeah. We have, we're like, we have the ability to be so distracted so easily, even just sitting at a computer doing work. Yeah. I can have a hundred browser tabs open, you know, notifications coming in. It's like, how do I get anything done? And that applies to more than just like business people, although he's got to really be conservative with his time. Um, so I, do you have any um, tips on how you figure out how to keep yourself focused in, in, in a world basically where we're constantly being distracted? Yeah. Um, so, so one thing I do, which um, I know some people like my, my partner drives them nuts is I just put my phone away um, I just don't look at it for like hours. Um, and you know, that means sometimes text messages go unnoticed for a while. Um, but I find that I have to, cause I also find that, you know, even if it's just a text message, once I like open my phone, there's no way I'm not going to like also click a couple other things. Right. Um, so I have to just have it like completely out of sight. And then, you know, I've taken some measures, I think particularly with the working from home and COVID, I think is especially hard not to kind of get sucked into like news or social media. Um, so I just make sure I remove that stuff from like my work computer so I don't have my iMessages popping up, right? Um, and I just try to make it hard for myself because I find that just adding like a couple steps to do something can make a big difference. Um, and yeah, another thing I've done, I don't know how helpful this is. I do this thing on my phone. I don't know if you can see this. I, I like put all of my apps inside inside of folders. Yeah, in these little folders. And for some reason it makes a huge difference for me mentally because like the folder like aggregates up how many notifications you have, but you don't know what app it's coming from. So it's not like, oh, check Facebook, check this. It's just kind of like all these numbers piling up. And I know a lot of them are, are meaningless. And so just this extra step of having to actually like go into the folder and see what the notifications are, it, it helps me to stay off some of these things. Um, especially like the the most addictive ones, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a constant struggle. Do you have any tips? Do you? I I turned a long time ago, so I this is a two things I do. I turn off my push notifications. Number one, so oh. all of them, everything, absolutely everything. Yeah. So like I don't get push notifications for emails or anything, and I've gotten really bad about this lately. Is I just gotten back to like just opening my email like every five minutes. But I had for the longest time um, done, this is a suggestion from Tim Ferriss, who's author of the 4-Hour Workweek, mm -hmm. is you check your email twice a day. Check it at noon, check it at 5. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll answer people at noon, you'll answer people at 5. If people have to get a hold of you, like it's an emergency, call. Otherwise, send me an email, I'll get back to you at noon. I'll right. get back to you five. And that's like batching where you're like, instead of just, 
okay, I'm working on code, and then I got an email, and then back to code, and then back to instead of doing that task switching, it's just this is my task at noon, answer everybody. This is my task at five to end the day. Leave me alone for the rest of the evening because this is my like my alone time. I know I need to get back there because I've <laughs> I've been terrible about it lately, um, but that's I found that to be very helpful. Setting that rule, having a rule. Yeah. It says these are the times I can check it, otherwise yeah. I can't. But but you mentioned like so people have to call you if it's an emergency. Like nobody calls. Oh nobody. Okay, because there's no emergencies, or because they they just expect that you should be on your email every five minutes. Well, the only people the only people the only people that call me are basically my dad. Um, he's 77. He's retired, so he's got a lot of time to himself. And my phone's often on silent, so he'll call. I won't see his call. And then he'll like uh, call my significant other, and then she'll give me the phone. Other than that, the only people that call are spam callers. Yeah. Um, I will have the phone on during the workday to try to answer customer calls, but those are often spam callers. I very rarely get customers calling. And then when I'm scheduling like freight deliveries, and they'll leave a voicemail, I'll call them yeah. back. Yeah. So no, nobody calls. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I, I was thinking like you almost have to like train people, right? Like right, and that's what that's what Tim Ferriss says is like you have to train them. If it's something not important, send me an email. Yeah, don't call me. Right. And once they get used to like, you know, Randy's not gonna pick up her phone. I'll just send an email. I'll just send a text. She'll get back to me. Yeah. Then they kind of they kind of stop. It it peters right. off. Yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um. It's something that I feel like is is just difficult to do if you have a job where you're sort of expected. Like if the culture of the company is like you should see your email every hour, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to to not go along with that. Yeah. Um, but I, I certainly wish that was the case. Like I I long for the days. I feel like even college, it was like this. There was like almost a 24 hour grace period, right? Like no one expected you to necessarily see your email with less than 24 hour turnaround. But it doesn't feel that way anymore. It feels like email is almost just like maybe a slightly more contentful text message, but you're supposed to see it like almost immediately. Yeah. But yeah. It would be it would be interesting if you if you could experiment with it and report back to me to see because Tim's supposition is basically that even though whoever's emailing you thinks that it's important and it needs to be answered right now, it probably doesn't. Hmm. Now, I'm sure there are cases where that's not the case. It does need to be answered right now, but that's the case where it's like, call me if it needs to be answered right now. If it can be answered in three hours, I'll check it at noon, check it at five. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious. I, I don't know if everybody did that. I don't know how effective it would be. You know, if everybody's emailing at noon and everybody's emailing at five, then you've got lag time and hmm. I don't know. Anyway, we're running short on time. Um, so I'm asking everybody this season or this year the same question. Um, I think it's probably particularly pertinent for you. Um, I'm asking people, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Hmm. Whoa, that's a deep question. Um, so... Let me just think for like 10 seconds. That's okay. <laughs> so I 
I think that there there almost has to be a, a distinction between like individual sports and, and team sports in my mind, um, because I do find they, at least to me, they seem to play a little bit of different roles in people's lives. And, and you could correct me if I'm wrong. Like maybe maybe you really don't feel this way as a runner. Um, but individual sports, I often think of as being really like a personal thing about self-improvement. Um, and team sports, I think of as being more about like community and culture building. Now that said, I understand there are, there are running teams and running culture, that sort of thing. Um, but at least for me, they sort of have played different roles. Like if I am doing running or biking, that's really about me against myself. It's a very personal thing. It's about connecting with my body and sort of pushing myself. Um, and team sports are really about like making connections um, and sort of feeling like you're you're a part of something. Like I always feel that there is sort of connection I have with people that I play sports with, um, people who I play hockey with that like, I don't get that in the same way with people that I work with, right? Or people that I sort of know um, from like normal life. Um, so so I guess that would be my, my short answer is that I think it's about culture and community. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really big question. Like you can also look at this from really different angles, right? Like on a more like, you could think of it from the perspective of like national identities, right? And like national pride, these sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I feel like that was a terrible answer. I, I feel like I, I need to like think on it for like, you know, a couple hours and then like write an essay about it because it's such a big question. That's okay. It, my part of my purpose is I, I might, compile everybody everybody's answers together into a book so if you want to talk more about it i'll get back in touch with you and maybe we can expand upon that yeah <laughs> in, in, in written format um but it's nice to hear people's kind of like gut reaction to it yeah right because it is so deep and it can be so many facets like mm-hmm. what is just the first thing that comes you know comes to your mind mm-hmm. um in regards to running and community, yes, there is like running culture, but it is it is kind of an odd dichotomy where it's like I am trying to improve my own times and I want to be faster, better, stronger. But then, like at least at the high school collegiate level, if you're on a team of similarly um, similar like similar fitness level individuals, you have a shared experience of suffering. Mm, yeah. You know, where and you are encouraging each other to be better, mm-hmm. even though individually you all have to perform. And like, like um, I shot a commercial with my my friend Brian. So anybody who wants to see that, just go to the Soul Pre website. Um, who ran with me in college? Like, I, Brian's a small guy, but I couldn't put Brian on my back and run with him, and you know, like, you know, get him to the finish line sooner. Like that's not how that works. Right. He has to run his own race. And I have to run my own race, but collectively again, in those formats, there is a team and you do score points and you rank as a team. Right. So there is some team aspect, but definitely not in the same sense that a team sport would be played, you know, or you're passing a ball or a puck or, or whatever yeah. it is where you have to coordinate, cooperate, you know, set up plays, do all that kind of stuff where you're a piece of a larger puzzle versus an individual piece that happens to go together with other individual pieces. Yeah, certainly. Um, 
I, I yeah, you mentioned shared suffering, and that that is so huge on on team sports as well. Um, like on the Korean team, we had such different people. Like our age range was like 16 to 30. We had people who grew up in the U.S. or Canada, people who spent their whole lives in Korea, people who kind of straddled both. And um, it was shared suffering that brought us together, right? Like that was the only thing. And I think maybe our coach understood that and made our lives really, really difficult sometimes. Um, but like it really did bond us together. Um, and that was just a cool experience too of just starting out and being like, wow, like we're so different. Like I don't know how this team is possibly going to work. And then by the end, feeling so connected with these people, um, that's pretty cool. Um, the one other thing that just kind of popped in my mind, um, you know, if I if I make it a little more personal and not, you know, trying to answer this huge question of like, what is the purpose of sports for like the entire world? But like, you know, <laughs> right. what, like what is what is yeah, the just for you? Yeah, like so, I would actually say, I think for me and like many of the girls that I've played with on. Um, you know, local teams, college teams, definitely the Korean national team. Um, it's about finding like a safe space in the world where you can be like completely free, be yourself. I think for women, like sort of not having guys around, and it's like a weird thing to say, but it makes a huge difference because people stop like performing for men, right? Like the girls stop thinking like, oh, like, how does my body look? Do I look attractive for men? Am I being feminine enough for men? It's like, you're completely surrounded by women and you can like be as gross as you want. You can be as aggressive as you want. And you just see this like freedom come out of women when they're in this like all female environment, particularly for an aggressive sport like hockey. I think mm -hmm. it's an outlet for a lot of girls. And for some of these girls on the Korean team, like Korean society is pretty culturally like oppressive on women right like there are such high standards for beauty femininity and you could just see these girls like just the freedom that they felt when they were at the rink in the locker room having their team time it was a beautiful thing to see and you realize that you know people wonder like why why were these girls playing hockey in the first place like no one cares about hockey in korea can't make money right people think it's weird why were they doing it that's why they were doing it right like they were doing it for that feeling in the locker room um and so I think that would be my answer for, you know, if I if I was to make it specific for kind of women's ice hockey, um, I think it's a, a space to be free as women. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've forgotten the exact word you said, but you said something along the lines of like, it sounds weird or it sounds wrong or something. And I, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I know I've had that experience like with like with scouts growing up is Boy Scouts and then there's Girl Scouts and they're divided. And now there's this push where like girls are allowed to be in boy scouts and it's like right. you know it, it kind of makes me sound conservative and i'm pretty middle of the road so politically mm -hmm. so, but i'm like it it was it's nice like as a boy growing up just to be at with a group of boys doing boy things not worrying about like you said there is that that pressure like if girls are around you're like well i want that one's cute. Like I want to talk to her or whatever. Like your behavior changes. Yep. You know, you're not the same anymore. Yeah. And I know like, um, for scout camp, there's a, a day when families come up called visitor Sunday and guys would just be bananas when like everybody's sisters would come up or whatever. And this the dynamic is completely different. So I think there's a lot of value in having those avenues where it's like, it's just women or it's just men or, or whatever, you know, the division is going to be 
yeah. depending on age, obviously. It, there's a lot of value in that through, like you mentioned, that freedom where you don't have that that pressure to try to impress the opposite sex anymore. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and, you know, I, I know it's not for everyone, and, and I feel a little conflicted sometimes about the idea of, like, gender segregation in schools at a young age. Right. But at the same time, I, I do just see, like, you know, in, in young women, for example, like the level of confidence that they can build in themselves when they're not worried about what boys think is something that I think is just so important. And it seems like it can't happen unless you you create these sort of special places. Um, so, yeah. Randy, I think we could probably keep going for a while, but <laughs> we've run over time. I want to be mindful of your time. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, kind of see what you're up to, are there any avenues where they can keep in touch with kind of what's going on um, with you, your research, or any, anything like that? Um, hmm. I mean, I, I have a dinky personal website that I don't really keep super updated anymore. <laughs> um, and I'm not huge on social media either. Um, but, you know, if, if they really wanted to, to see my, my bad jokes and stuff, they could follow me on Facebook. Um, okay. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Not not really. <laughs> nope. That's that's probably fine. I'm not I'm not really active on social media. So I, I'm with you too. I have the show and that's that's about the extent of what I do. Um, Randy, I, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. Yeah, thanks. This was a great conversation. Take care.